and thank you everyone for joining today. So we are going through the book of Acts, I mean, I'm sorry, the book of James here at Acts Reform Fellowship. Uh, and we are in chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 4, and we're going to go through verses 13 through 17. So while you're getting there, James 4, 13 through 17. Um, the book of James is one that has a lot of practical wisdom. Um, a lot of times we find ourselves asking, I, I wonder what, what God would have me to do in this or that situation. And when we come to the book of James, we realize that the word of God tells you here plainly what it is that God would have you to do in a lot of different situations that we encounter in our everyday life. So uh, with that, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that happens, that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Alright, you may be seated. So, in the book of James thus far, um, James is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. And he was a non-believer until after the resurrection, when he saw the resurrected Christ. But we know from throughout the scriptures, um, the account of the, of the Gospels, that Jesus' family, with the exception of Mary, they were actually not believers until after the resurrection. So, an interesting thing on, think, uh, on realizing that James is a half-brother of Jesus, the Bible is silent from about when Jesus was 12 or 13, up until the time where he began his, uh, his actual earthly ministry, which was around 30 years old. And if we think about it, James was actually there with him because they lived in the same house. So a lot of times when James is writing, he, has, he may have in mind that he saw and lived on the side of Jesus as, uh, as Jesus himself developed his... He, the Bible says he grew in, in wisdom and stature, so he was there to see that. And then this portion of James that we just read brings us to more practical wisdom. The book of James is often uh, interpreted and referred to as the wisdom literature in the New Testament. As in the Old Testament, we have um, the book of Proverbs, we have Songs of Solomon, we have uh, even Psalms, Ecclesiastes. And in the New Testament, the book of James can be seen as the literature of wisdom in the New Testament. So with that, let's dig right in. Verse 13, it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town 
and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is once again here just about three weeks ago when we talked about those that claim to be wise. He calls them out. He says, hey, you, who you say you're wise, let's, let's see who you are. Here, in a similar manner, James is calling out those among his audience, among the congregation there in Jerusalem, that are saying, you know what, we're going to make plans. We're going to go to such and such a place. We are self-sufficient. And we are planning with self-interest in mind. Because if you look there at the end, the ends of that planning is to make a profit. So, this rebuke, although it's, it seems to be specific to some people there within the audience that James is, is calling out, let's remember that this is actually for people within the church. He's talking to the church. And also, let's remember that this calling out, or this rebuking, if you will, is general enough that it could apply to us. Why? Because we may at times have plans, have our own um, judgment without consulting for one scripture, without considering our choices in prayer. And we are making all kinds of life-changing decisions, not thinking, will this be wise? Will this be something that will affect my relationship with Christ or my community that I belong to of believers. So, notice that the ultimate end here is to make a profit, as we just saw. In James 1.11, James already talked about the rich men that will perish while he's pursuing after riches. In James 3.14, we already saw how he talks about how we, even as Christians, can have bitter envy and selfish ambition and in rebellion against the truth. So he's again picking up that topic here, that theme, that same theme. And why would someone be envious and have selfish ambition? Because I am not content with work. God has me, or with where God has called me, uh, why has God blessed such and such more than me? Why does that other person seems to be blessed more than I am if I'm the one doing everything right? So out of selfish ambition comes this, this planning as if they were self-sufficient. So we may ask, so what's wrong with planning? So let's focus and let's briefly mention what this passage is not saying. It is not saying that planning is bad. It is not telling us not to engage in business. And it's not telling us that it is wrong to make money. It is not telling us that. As a matter of fact, speaking about the wisdom literature, we know that a man who is wise and seeks counsel and has a vision and plans according to that vision is commended by God. Someone who is able to take care of his or her finances and be a good steward of what God is, uh, entrusted, is entrusted them with is also commended by God. So let's not have in mind a misinterpretation of this text that says, you know what, let's not plan 
let's just say God will bless it and I'm going to do nothing. I'm just going to sit here. That is not what this passage is teaching. Or those evil businessmen, those evil people that make money, it is not referring to that either. Because a wise person will seek God's instruction and guiding and will plan according to it. But the problem that we run into is that people within the church make plans as if God has no effect in our lives. Or, I mean, let's be honest, as if He doesn't really exist. This is what some people will refer to as Christians living as practical atheists. Why is it that you don't believe in God? No. But practically speaking, you compartmentalize your things that have to do with God and things that have to do with the secular world. So my job, my choices, um, wherever I move, whatever promotion I'm taking, whatever impact my choices are going to have on my life, I don't consider how they're going to affect my relationship with Christ. And we may think, oh yeah, I know such and such a person that perhaps has done that. But let's ask, have I done that? Am I too quick to respond to life situations that are going to affect my relationship with God and yet I don't even notice it? So, this passage here is emphasizing that we need to have the conviction that God is in control. We need to have the conviction of being a Christian that follows Jesus and we pray and we fast and we bring our plans before the Lord. In a sense telling Him, Lord, I think this is what Your will is. If it is, show me, bless me, open a door. Rather than saying, today or tomorrow I'm going to do this and that and the other and I'm going to stay there for a year. But here, we are reminded that it shouldn't be so because we are not in control. And why does it matter to put the priorities in place of having that insight from Scripture, from brothers and sisters from our community to really give insight into what we're doing? Because as we may often plan for retirement or how we can attain more wealth or grow our wealth, there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But we can find ourselves being distracted and consumed with that next building of our little empire, if you will. Now, I've often asked myself when even I am, if I'm honest, feeling like I want to gain more or have a bigger profit here as, as the last word of this passage says here in this verse. I wonder if the most successful p people in history, and by that I mean by the world standards, how is it if they even have the privilege of being in a deathbed? What is their attitude? What do they ask for? Could it be, uh, bring me my bank account statement to see how good I'm, I'm looking in, in my finances? Right? Or could it be, 
bring me that org chart to see how many people are under me or org charts if they own multiple companies or remind me of how many awards and recognitions I received whether academic or at the business or even for being charitable and giving to charity and if we're honest probably not and yet Many times, those are the kind of people that even us look up to, the successful people by the world's standards. However, probably, just maybe, the feelings that these people will have would be some of remorse. Why? They're maybe asking, where are my kids? Where is my wife? Why didn't my marriage work out? So, they may be at that spot asking, so this is it? I'm at the end of the road now, and why do I have to show for it? <clears throat> so with that, we need to remember that as we chase after our own plans, without being mindful that God is the one in control, we will either do our life plans to God's glory, or if we're lucky enough, if you want to call it lucky, to be able to attain our own plans, it'll ultimately bring us misery because it will not fulfill you. We've seen that over and over. So verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So here James has some news for us that ultimately we are not in control of our destiny. And also that life is uncertain because we do not know what tomorrow will bring and that life is brief. That's mainly the three points in this verse. This reminded me of a parable that Jesus told what is often referred to as a parable as a parable of the rich fool. It's in Luke 12 verses 16 through 21. So let me just read that real quick. Luke 12 16 through 21. And here's when uh, someone asked Jesus um, if they could divide their, their possessions. And Jesus', Jesus response is basically that life does not consist of abundance and possessions. So here Jesus says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. So here, that parable directly relates to the warning that James once again has given us. And Jesus is warning us that if we set to build treasures for our own selves, we are, we're going to end up like that rich person. And we may think, well, I'm not rich, so I don't have to worry about that. So, two things on that. I think at some point, uh, I gave a sermon earlier uh, this year, in which basically, by the world standards, you're rich. And two, we don't have to consider ourselves rich to be chasing after riches. So we can quickly kind of let that bounce off of us and say, well, I'm not rich, so I don't have to worry about it. But the warning is for all of us. So then James asks, what is your life? We may know that the vast majority of philosophy, entire a list of the most famous philosophers of history, their work revolves around this question. What is your life? Who are you? Where do you come from? Why are you here? And why does that matter? The book of Ecclesiastes, once again, talks about this quite a bit. Solomon wrote it towards the end of his life, and he had been granted wisdom by God. And he had abundance, the scripture says, like no other. We know that many other rulers would travel days upon days, if not longer, just to ask Solomon a question. So we could see the, the might of Solomon's kingdom. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us a lot about the perspective of wisdom from a worldly perspective of all the things that Solomon experienced and chased after. And by the end of his life, when he wrote this book, humanly speaking, he basically came to the conclusion that life is but vanity and meaningless. And the best that one can do is to fear God. As we've seen in, in other recent studies, when the Bible uses the phrase to fear God or somebody that fears God, it is always in reference to a true believer. So basically Solomon is saying, forget about all the riches and all the might and all the wealth. Be a true believer in God instead. And what about in our day, in our culture, what is the majority of the gurus out there encourage us to live like or to look to? What kind of values are elevated in our world today? I mean, if we're honest, at best, we're encouraged to be nice to each other and to be tolerant. As long as you agree with me. Because then otherwise, <laughs> alright? We're encouraged to not pollute the environment. <laughs> 
we come back to this question, what is life? If we really press what these values would be, what they would look like in our everyday life, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, it comes to, well, you decide. Whatever is good for you, might not be good for me, but, you know, do as you will. This is called relativism. Which basically confirms that nothing is true. Any, anything pretty much goes if you think it's good. And no wonder that the kind of advice that we see in all these inspirational quotes of our day, follow your heart. Follow your dreams. You can do anything you propose yourself to do. But as Christians, we should ask, what is my life? What is God's will for my life? There's a quote by A.W. Tozer in which he says, Most Christians don't hear God's voice because we've already decided we aren't going to do what He says. Now somebody may say, Actually, Christians don't hear God's voice because they don't read the Bible. Obviously that's true. So, making sure that we are um, reading our Bible. Aside from that, if we're honest, there's times that we find ourselves at that fork in the road, and we know what we should do. There's no question. And willfully, we disobey. And yet, we find ourselves saying, I wonder what God's insight would be for me. But during those times, we don't want to ask because we already know. And we're not going to do it. And hence, this quote rings true. So James says, You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I remember when I first moved to the U.S. Uh, from Mexico, lived in Texas. We were there for about a year. And there we're actually, we're actually able to see all the four seasons of, of the year. And when it gets cold, it's really cold. Freezing cold. I remember getting up in the morning to go to school. And as I would blow, the vapor of my warmth uh, of, of my mouth would appear a little bit. And then it's gone. James is pretty much saying... That's how your life actually is. If we put everything in perspective, if, if we put eternity in perspective, that's how fast your life is going to go. As a matter of fact, we can infer from this that it's so quick that if you don't pay attention, you miss it. And then you'll find yourself, like I always say, if you're lucky enough to be in your deathbed and say, what happened? Where did my life go? And hence, James is warning here that life is so quick. So it brings an obvious question. Meaning that life is quick means that we are headed for death. Have we ever had an experience that was a close call to die? Whether from illness or from an accident of some sort. At least in my case, 
I don't think of that too often. But the times that I do mostly think of those times where, geez, I, I guess, yeah, I guess we're all going to die, is when we have a close relative or friend that dies. Then it, it kind of really hits home. And we are, we are all heading that way, so. May we remember that James says, your life is going to go so quick. And that's why we should give God His proper place of being sovereign over our lives and seek His counsel. Verse 15 says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This reminded me of a dear brother of ours that is now with the Lord. Brother Charlie. I remember when we first began the ministry here at Acts. He had sent me a text. Uh, in December, early December I think it was. And he said, hey uh, Brother Gerardo, when... Uh, are you going to be teaching there at Acts? And I say, yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be teaching, uh, I think it was on Christmas Day, if I, if I recall correctly. And I think I was going to be preaching the last day of the year, the, whatever the last Sunday was. And Charlie wrote back a message and said, sounds good, brother. He said, uh, it looks like the St. Nicholas family will be uh, spending that, uh, that last Sunday of, of the year Worshipping with you guys. And he said, If the Lord wills, I'll never forget that. Brother Charlie went to be with the Lord about a week before that. Right? And I, I have that very present in my mind. That he said, If the Lord wills. He doesn't get more explicit than that for an application here, right? So James goes back here to giving us plain and simple insight. The book of James tells us in a lot of the illustrations that he gives, don't do this, rather do this. I've heard many times from different people that the Bible is difficult to understand and ultimately we really don't know what it's saying. Or another classic one, even within the church, we kind, of, we kind of alluded to that earlier, that we say, I need God to tell me what to do. So I will wait for His voice. Let's see if He speaks to me. Well, He has spoken. James is full of wisdom and instruction for us to model a Christ-like living. As a couple of reminders, James tells us to be humble. To think of others first, especially those that are the most needy. He warns us not to waste our time and life chasing after riches. He tells us to not just be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. Otherwise, you're self-deceived. In that same train of thought, he tells us, if you say that you have faith, but you look back at your life, you look at your lifestyle, 
and that faith you claim has nothing to show for it, he says, you better check yourself. You're actually probably not a believer. James tells us to control our tongue, to be slow to anger, to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak. On and on and on. This is in our everyday relational issues, right? So these things are plain in Scripture, but nevertheless, there we are, being bitter, envious, covetous, not at peace with our loved ones, and we're waiting for God to speak to us. He has spoken to us. And James tells us, don't be deceived. So coming back to this passage here, he's telling us that we should remember and acknowledge God's sovereignty to say if God wills, if He permits, if God is merciful enough and allows me to do such and such. We should remember that God is ultimately in absolute control. A couple of scriptures that reminds us of that. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plants his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Psalm 135.6 says, The Lord does whatever He pleases Him, in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. So God rightfully deserves not only reverence and worship, but we must acknowledge His Lordship so that we can say and come to Him saying, you know Lord, I have this conviction about something I think I should do. And if you will, if you allow it, please open the door. The second thing there says, if the Lord wills, we will live. This means that God determines how long we live. In Acts 18.21, Paul says, when leaving Ephesus, he reminds the people there, I will return to you if God wills. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 4.19, he says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Why is that? Because Paul, every time he went to city to city, preaching the gospel, practically everywhere he went, there was a massive riot. Why? Because he was preaching the Lord Jesus crucified and resurrected as King and Lord and God. So he knew that as he was making these stops in these different cities, that might be the last time that he would be alive to tell it. So, do we have that urgency to say, I'm going to do this and that and the other, I'm going to go on a business trip or what, or what have you, but we don't have really that urgency that it might not happen. We're all guilty of that. Verse 16 says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Again, this is a rebuke 
This is a reprimand. Because in this audience, there's people who were living, again, like practical atheists. Instead of living humbly, they were living in arrogance and pride. As if they needed nothing from God. Scripture reminds us that God shows grace to the humble, but He will resist the proud. Why is that? Someone in humility, knowing that they're in need, they will cry out to God. Whereas if somebody is doing relatively well, and might think that they're self-sufficient, they probably will not remember God. And a lot of times it has to do with the kind of income or wealth that they have. That's why scripture says that it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But the humble person will say, Lord, help me. Have mercy on me. Plenty of examples in Scripture about that. And Jesus said that He came to this world for those that are in need of a physician, not for those that are well. And the interesting thing is that, spiritually speaking, we are all in need of a physician. But only some of us acknowledge that. So the last verse here, verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So at face value, like our friend Craig Coco says, never read a Bible verse. But here, even this verse as a standalone, if we just pick it, it actually has a very hard-hitting truth just by itself. Often referred to as the sin of omission. I know what is right. I know what I ought to do. But I don't. So here we cannot say, hey, I didn't do anything. Well, yeah, that's the problem. You didn't. You knew what you should have done and you didn't do it. But more specifically to the context of this passage, we've been now reminded of the reverence and worship and place that we should give God in our lives. Knowing that we are not in control, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, and we acknowledge those truths. We can leave and go away, even impacted by the truth, and then not doing anything about it. James warns us of that. Don't be a hearer only, but be a doer. Don't be like someone, he says, that looks at yourself in the mirror, and you're like, wow, I've got some work to do. And then you go away and you forget. So here in this context, he's saying, now you know. Now you've been reminded of what you ought to do. And if you don't do it, now you're in even more trouble. Because now for sure you know what you should do in regards to asking God what His will is 
and considering if what you're doing and the major choices you're doing in your life are God's will. I was reminded of a book by John Piper that says, uh, it's called Don't Waste Your Life. So if we waste our lives knowing what we should do, then we are major offenders because we know the truth and we're doing nothing about it. So what are we to do with the scripture that we have examined this morning? If we're honest, some of us might be bummed out. We might say, oh, geez, I guess I'm not in control. God might throw a monkey wrench into my plans and everything is ruined. Or we might say, you know what? I have been living in that way. Separating things of God from the rest of my life and my own um, self plans and self gain has been at at the priority. And we could also be bummed out to realize that our life is quick and it'll be fast like a vapor. As a matter of fact, I'm lucky that I'm still here, right? You may even think of that. I should have been gone by now. I remember once hearing a, a testimony from a person that was in the final phases of, of their life. They had stage 4 cancer. I never remember what that young man said. He says, he was speaking to an audience and he said, you know what? Uh, don't pity me. Because I have a far better idea of how much longer I have. Says you don't. And that that really really hit me. <clears throat> but the good news is that we are still here. At least we're here today. And if God wills, He might give us more days, more weeks, months, hopefully years. So instead of letting this be a discouragement of perhaps we've been disobedient or not mindful of the things God might have us to do and we've been doing our own thing without consulting Him, it can be a great opportunity to redeem that time. What would you do differently if you knew how much time you have left to live? And if you don't know, then why aren't you living that way? So, do you know what God's will is for your life? Well, first, we know that God's will is for you to be saved, for you to know Jesus. For you to know that you are a fallen sinner and you've disobeyed God. We've all have. And that our sin, the wages for that sin, is death, separation from God, eternally. But God, being great in His love and mercy, has provided His Son so that we may trust in His perfect life and His perfect sacrifice when He was murdered, when He was humiliated, sped upon, 
He died on the cross so that by putting our faith in Him, our sins, the death that we deserve, would be placed on Him. And if we trust that, then when we come to that day of judgment, the Bible says that it is appointed for men once to die, and then comes judgment. When we're in that judgment seat, the righteousness of Christ will be counted to us as righteousness. God the Father will see you as having the righteousness of His Son, of the perfect one. So first and foremost, that is God's will for your life, to know Christ. And then the second question is, what is God's will now? As I walk in this path of the Christian walk so that we can be obedient to His calling. And lastly, if we really get down to it, what are the distractions that are keeping me from it? What are the sins that I'm willingly holding on to that I know hinder me from the calling that God has for me? May God grant us the grace to one, acknowledge where we are, to not lie to ourselves. And then, that He empowers us to live in such a way that we put Him where He belongs in our lives, as a sovereign Lord and God that He is, so that He may guide us. And in doing so, we may glorify Him through our lives in obedience. So if the Lord wills, Kevin will pick it up next time in chapter 4. And we're almost done with the book of James. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that you've given us to look over your passage of James this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would pierce us, that we would know that we need you, that we would know that you are gracious and good and a God that forgives, a God that heals, a God that loves, a God that is not only just, but that is also merciful. May you remind us of those truths this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.